I want to read one verse of Scripture, which is verse number 6. And I want to give you some Scriptures. And what I want to deal with today is how to fight depression, how to fight it, how to resist it, how to cast it out of your life. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke or spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But notice what David did. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now, we, we want you to understand that in the creation of man, God never made us to be depressed or excessively sorrowful. In fact, when God made Adam and Eve, they had no reason to be sad or discontent anyway. Everything they needed was in the garden, and the Scripture says that all that God had made was good. But with the entrance of sin, that brought about fear, that brought about thievery, that brought about all kinds of problems, and so many of these problems, of course, affected people emotionally. And if you don't believe it, you read the story of 1 Samuel 30, and you'll see that David's village, where he and his men were living, had been burned to the ground. The ladies had been taken captive. Many of the children were gone. Some people had lost their lives, and it's all because this was the safe haven that David and his men had used. And the Scripture says when David and his men had come back from raiding some villages, they saw the smoke ascending from their own village, and the Bible is clear that when they realized that all that they had that was precious to them was gone, they cried until they couldn't cry anymore. Now, if you've ever wept like that, I mean, wept to the point where you convulsed, then you understand what I'm talking about. Wept to the point that you shook and then cried to the point that your tear ducts did not produce any more tears. This was the kind of weeping that was involved here. And obviously there was wailing, there was screaming, there was yelling. The people were mad at David. They were saying, if we hadn't been following you, I wouldn't be without my wife. My kids would not have been taken captive. But because we're following you, we're in this trouble. So the Bible says he was greatly distressed. And where you find distress and where you find a lot of stress, if people can't handle it, you'll find depression. But the way to handle depression is to do what David did in the final sentence of verse 6. He encouraged himself. The circumstances were clear. His own family members and his own friends no longer believed in him. They wanted him dead. They turned their back on him. They were angry with him. And they wanted to do bodily harm to him. And the scripture tells us that the circumstances were so bad that he was discouraged. Now, if you've ever been in any predicament like that, you know how hard it is to try to keep your focus when everybody in the house is mad at you and everybody in the community is mad at you. 
But the response to dealing with stressful times is not to focus on those that are upset with you or to focus on your circumstance. The best response is to encourage yourself. Don't wait for other people to encourage you. Do it yourself. And that's what David did. He got along with the Lord, and he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You don't encourage yourself in the flesh. You don't encourage yourself in the things of this world, but you encourage yourself in the things of God. How do I do that? Put on some Christian music. If you're going to be encouraged in the Lord, then the Lord should be the focus of your strengthening. If you want to change your focus, change your outlook, if you want to change your attitude, then you've got to be willing to do whatever God requires of you in order for you to be a victorious person. So we're, we're all challenged. We all face battles. Every day there's a new obstacle that we have to deal with, but remember, obstacles are merely opportunities in disguise. So every obstacle provides you with one more opportunity to encourage yourself in the king. Now, how would, how would we do that? Start singing. Start praising God. You say, well, I don't sound that well. Neither do I, but sing loudly anyway. Make a lot of noise. I mean, just change everything about the atmosphere in which you're living. Don't whisper about it. Open up your mouth and, and begin to sing and glorify God. You can also pray. Yeah, pray and talk to God. Pour your heart out like a drink offering to God. Find some scriptures and confess them. Shout them out loud. If God be for me, who can be against me? And thanks be to God that causes me to triumph in all these things. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know those verses. Read the Bible. You'll learn some verses. If you're going to encourage yourself in the midst of your circumstances, you have to push your circumstances backward so that you can magnify your God in your trial. Don't magnify your problem. Don't magnify the obstacle. Well, what does a magnifying glass do? It takes something small and makes it bigger. And then when it becomes bigger, then you can see it with a lot more detail. You magnify your problems, you'll focus on every aspect of every problem that you have to the point that your problems obscure the presence of God. And that's what plenty of people do. Turn to Acts chapter 10 now. New Testament, there are four Gospels. Right after the Gospel of John, is the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. So I want to give you three scriptures in fighting depression, three scriptures in destroying the adversary that wants you to be excessively sorrowful and sad. I'm going to show you how to go home to a dark house and open up the curtains and throw the devil out and live like the warrior God has called you to be, rather than allowing yourself to be pressed down. Acts chapter 10, look at verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all, not some people, all that were, what's that next word? Oppressed of the devil, for God was with them. So the first point I want to emphasize is that any kind of pressure that negatively affects you is adversarial. And if it's adversarial, it doesn't come from God. God doesn't depress people. 
And God's not trying to put you in the bondage of some kind of despondency and despair. God does not want you walking around this world with clouds of despair looming low and you can't smile and you can't be happy. God wants you to put a smile on your face because he's with you, as it says in the final verse or the final words of verse 38. So depression then is adversarial. If I recognize it's adversarial, then I don't treat depression like it's a friend. I treat it like it's an enemy. God doesn't want you to learn how to cope with depression. He wants you to learn how to overcome depression. Think about it this way. All of us have moments where depression comes. I've had those and have those as a pastor. I can remember in our early years when I would think about the number of things we were involved with that cost money. And I would think of the number of people we supported and would wonder how in the world are we ever going to be able to support these people and do this and do that and have funds for this or for that? There would be moments, an hour, hour and a half, when I would think about all of that, I'd be depressed. But immediately, I'd get into the Word of God and start thinking about the Scriptures that say God will supply your every need and remind myself over and over again of what the Scripture says to me who's in covenant with God because Paul said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And once I started changing how I was thinking, then I could change my attitude. Once my attitude changed, I could change my outlook, and I could do that in less than three minutes. Now, it's a battle. It's a struggle. But you have to do this. No one can do this for you, but you cannot see depression as a friend. You've got to treat it like an enemy. And you don't want it to live with you. You don't want to live with it. You've got to resist it the same way you will resist an enemy that was coming into your house in the middle of the night to take authority over you and to put you in bondage. So let's suppose at 2 o'clock in the morning you heard a noise outside. And, and then you went and you grabbed whatever weapon you had and then you went to the curtains and then you looked and then you saw a shadowy figure that was, was going by. Well, of course, you would immediately go in high alert. I mean, because you're wondering who this is, why they're trying to come in, and what this could possibly be about. And then the person got a hood over their head, and then they come in, and then they sneak up on you, and then are you just going to sit down and let them take over? Are you going to wrestle and try to preserve what's yours? You're going to wrestle. You're going to try to stand your ground. Even if you throw the hoodie back and realize it's Pastor Darrell breaking in. See? See, it doesn't matter who the thief is, what it looks like or who it resembles, you don't want an intruder in your home that wasn't invited. So don't invite depression. Don't invite it to come in and sit there. We said, well, Pastor, you've got to understand the circumstances of my life and what I've passed through and my my parents and my grandparents and all of these things that I've I've had to face. I can understand that. You can tell me about it, but afterwards I'm still going to bring you back to the book. You've got to fight and resist the devil every moment of your life. You have to make a choice to resist it because I can't resist the devil for you and you can't resist the devil for me. 
So depression, repression, suppression, oppression, any kind of pressure that negatively or adversely affects you is an enemy. And you are not to give coffee to it. And you're not to sit down and feed it potato chips. And you're not to sit down and learn how to adapt with it. You are to fight it every way that you can. Now, if by chance you end up at a doctor's uh, office and the doctor says to you that you have this or that physical defect or something in your life and they say they want to prescribe this or that, you, you've got to make the decision somewhere along the line. Do you want to live the rest of your life with that? See, You've got to, you've got to make a determination there. Because a, a doctor can give you something that's going to help you for a season that will help you cope, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will heal you. But what I want you to see is that in all circumstances, there is something you can do. You can change your mind and you can change your emotions simply by thinking about the things of God. For a moment. If you can do it for a moment, you can do it for two. If you can do it for two moments, you can do it for five minutes. If you can do it for five minutes, you can make it a half hour. If you can make it a half hour, you can do it for six hours. Doing what? Prayer, praise, confessing the word, standing on God's word, creating an atmosphere where Christ is magnified. Don't let the enemy become comfortable in your home. I mean, don't make it dark in there. Don't sit around sad, all unhappy about everything and refusing to answer the phone call when people are reaching out to you and refusing to answer the door when people are coming to visit you and when people are trying to get you out of the house and into the light and people are trying to make you laugh and all of this kind of stuff. Don't resist them. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is like a medicine. See, it's like a medicine. He that has a merry heart says that merry heart does good like a medicine. So since you like the medicine that the doctor gives, why not try the medicine that the great physician gives? And I like laughter. I like smiling. I like being happy. I'd much rather be around people that are going to joke and tease and make me smile than be around people that's going to make me cry. Makes for a better day, too. So again, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it's God who anointed Jesus. Jesus had the ministry of healing everyone that was oppressed. So everyone includes me, everyone includes you, and his ministry is designed to free you of depression. No doubt about it, to free you of it. And when we pray for people who are depressed, we pray strongly and we ask God to help them. We don't play around with it. We say, depression, go in the name of Jesus. And we expect it to leave. We, we want it gone. We want it to, to disappear. And if we have to tell you to start shouting and praising God, we want you to start shouting and praising God. But a countenance has to change. Now, I remember in a, a meeting one time, we had a little girl who was being raised by a grandmother, and her grandmother told me that this girl she had, she had never seen her smile. Now, that's a grandchild. Or I should say, hadn't seen her smile since she came to live with her. <clears throat> well, the mom was in jail, and the dad was in jail, substance abuse problems. So this was a service where 
we were praying for miracles. It's the kind of meeting it was. And she brought this little girl to me. She couldn't have been, I don't know, 11 or 12, and she didn't look happy to be there. And when I went up to her and was talking to her, I asked her, could I pray for her? And she said that I could. I put my hands on both sides of her head. I rebuked depression. I told it to come out of her. Well, within a few moments, I had led her to the Lord, and her grandmother, because I took the girl away from grandma, I had her off on the side of the auditorium where everybody else was kind of over there, because I didn't want her to be nervous about everybody looking at her. But within a few moments, they looked over there and saw the little girl had her hands up. She was crying, had a big smile on her face, all because God had touched her and ministered to her. God did not design you or make you and me to be depressed, but to be happy and to smile. That's the way he created this. Well, let's look at another verse. Go to Romans chapter 8. That's the book immediately after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 8. And I want to read beginning with verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now notice all these different items. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, more than conquerors. You can see from verse 35 that all of those things that are mentioned can produce depression. If you have enough tribulation in your life, I can promise you you'll be sad. Yeah, if you have enough. You say, what, what is enough tribulation? What are you talking about? I'm talking about you lose a loved one. You have another calamity. You have another problem. House starts giving you problems, going to cost you thousands of dollars. You find out insurance that you thought you had isn't going to be available. You get a bill or you get notification from the mortician that money is needed. You don't even have money to even buy a pauper's casket. That kind of stuff can depress you. And there are a whole lot of people deal with that every day. Tribulation. Tribulation. Well, what else? Distress. We already dealt with David. The people that weren't happy with him. What if you're not getting along with your neighbor? That can produce distress in your life. What if you've got people on your job that you don't like and they don't like you? That certainly can be stressful, extremely stressful. You don't want to go to work, and and then when you get there, you don't like being there, and then compounded by the fact that you don't like your home situation. So when you leave a work situation you don't like, and then you have to go to a house that you don't like, isn't that distress? It's a whole lot of distress. That, turn, that, that leads a whole lot of people to go to a bottle. Depression, despondency, despair. 
What else did it mention here? Persecution. If people are constantly attacking you, if people are saying you're guilty of this, if people are saying you're a Christian and I don't like you and you deserve to die and you've got to change your routes like many Christians in the Middle East do because they don't want to be killed by some Muslim fanatic or Hindu fanatic or Buddhist fanatic or communist fanatic, that can be depressing. Your loved ones being arrested and put in jail like in China where it's against the law to teach religion to minors under the age of 18. Can you imagine having a son or a daughter that's four or five and you're a Christian, and it is against the law by rule of the government to teach your child about the Christ that you love? And in China, they line the kids up in school and ask the kids in the classroom, do your parents talk to you about religion? And if they say yes, according to the law, the parents lose all parental rights. That'll lead to depression. Mom and dad get arrested, put in jail for talking about Jesus. Yeah. Notice what it says here. Famine, lack of food. How many times have you seen pictures of little babies with distended bellies? Not because they're full, but because they're swell up and there's no food. Totally depressed. Mom and dad don't even have anything to give to the child. Mom can't provide milk for the baby because she don't have anything in her to even produce milk so the baby could suck. Totally depressed. Congo, in Sudan, in Niger, parts of Chad the jungles of Brazil, maybe in Laos or Vietnam, where if you're Christian, the uh, local villagers who practice their own religion will actually shut you out because of your faith in God and, and double or triple or quadruple the price for a Christian because you love Jesus Christ. Yeah, famine, just about starved to death. That'll bring depression. But then nakedness. Along with all these other things, if you can't afford food and you can't afford different things, you're probably not going to have a whole lot of clothing. Why do you think you see so many kids running around in foreign countries that don't have shoes, don't even have a pair of sandals on, scantily clad? We go to places in Africa where you'll find somebody, they'll just have some little shirt they found in a garbage heap, maybe a pair of pants, and that's what they wear coming to church. It's all that they have. It's not dress clothes or anything like that. They're just glad to have something. But then I've seen the ones come who didn't have anything to wear at all, naked. And then the last one mentioned there, the sword. That's death people around you losing their lives because of their faith in God. I told the folks here not too long ago, maybe Wednesday night, talking about the parable of the vineyard, about the Chinese man, the police that had dogs out in the streets, knew this man was a Christian, and they said to him, you say you believe that Jesus can raise, from the raise people from the dead? Let's see if he can raise you. And they all turned their dogs loose on the man and mauled him to death. And then the dogs began to eat his flesh as hundreds of people stood around and watched. The family that I lived with in Amman, Jordan, they were Iraqi. When ISIS was invading and taking over that place in Iraq, they told me personally how their family members had packed their bags, was going to leave their home the next morning because Muslims were going to Christian houses and kicking Christians out of their house and then taking over, just moving in, taking over the house. 
They said they came in, killed the husband, killed some kids. Wife ran up to the top of the rooftop just trying to escape the people that came in there with a hatchet, killing them one by one, and hacked to the death on the roof, surrounded by villagers that were looking from their apartment windows as she died. But with all of that that took place and these kinds of things that are taking place, verse 37 says, in all these things we're more than conquerors. You understand? More than conquerors. The only way you can believe that is you have to know who you're connected to. So verse 38 says, I'm persuaded. That means in your mind you're persuaded. You have to change how you think in order to move beyond a depressed circumstance. Now think about it this way. In America, a person can be depressed and they can get disability or whatever, or somebody let them stay home five or six days from work, sometimes a month from work. They'll give them off so they, you know, they lost a loved one. They can be at home. But in most places around the world, you don't get that. You're not going to get any money. You're not going to get any time off. You lose a child, you're going to have to be back to work the next day, if not the same day, to pay your bills. So you have to move beyond the ability to sit and allow yourself to curl up in a fetal position and feel sorry for yourself, you have got to fight and be persuaded that God is with me and I'll make it through this. That's the only way to do it. You've got to, you've got to push through. And we don't have people strong enough mentally today to keep pushing through. The people describe folks like that as feeble-minded. They won't control their thinking. They won't govern their thoughts until they're constantly with scatterbrained thoughts and imagining scenarios that are not so. But Philippians 4 and 7 and 8 says that the, that the God who controls our minds and our hearts through the peace of Jesus wants us to think on things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are just. If you want to be more than a conqueror, then you've got to be the one that actually changes your mind. You, you've heard the analogy of a man that goes out, gets into a big boxing match, and them heavyweights are going at it, and they're one blow after another, hurting and harming each other, and they come to the end of the 12th round. Both of them are tired, barely able to stand, holding on to each other. One of them might have an eye that's just about closed. Another one might have swollen parts of the face and certainly blood in different places. And when they get to the end of the fight, and then that referee who's standing up there in between both of them, they get the the scoring card that tells who won, and they say so-and-so, this card 115-113, this card 115-113, this card here 112-116. And we declare the winner. Then he lifts the hand of the person. He looks like he's barely able to stand, but he's the victor. He's the conqueror. But then he turns around, goes home, and then a couple of days later, after he's 
somewhat healed up, and, and, and all the checks and everything are coming through from the people that bought it through pay-per-view, and for the people, because of the contract that he had, then all of a sudden they deliver a check to him that says $1.7 million. He was in there fighting. He then takes that check. He goes home to his wife, who never even entered the ring, and he puts that check in her hand, and she smiles. He's the conqueror, but she's more than a conqueror. She didn't even do the fighting or even have to do the struggle, but yet she receives the proceeds from it. And you consider what Christ did when he climbed up on that cross and spoiled the powers of principalities and defeated the devil for you and me. We didn't even enter into the battle. But we have become recipients of the riches of his grace. And having received all of that, we should be persuaded, absolutely persuaded. God has not called you to be depressed. He's called you to be a conqueror and to fight every moment. And if you lose battles during the day or during the week with this adversary, just remember, it is an adversary. Keep fighting it. Keep fighting it. Don't ever give in and succumb and just say, this is just my lot in life and this is what God has for me. Oh, no, it isn't. Even David knew that under the law. That's why David encouraged himself. If he thought this was the will of God for his life, he would have just sat down and let them stone him. He said, oh, no, I've got to resist this. One more scripture, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice what the man of God is saying to a heavily persecuted church where people have been dying. 1 Peter 5, notice what it says in verse 7. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now why do we need to unload our shoulders and our hearts of the burdens of all of these cares? Jesus said in Matthew 13 that the sower goes and sows the word. And one of the problems, he said, with why the word doesn't grow is because of the cares of this world. You can have so many cares in your life that the word of God can't flourish. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor? If you're struggling with bills, that's a burden. And that's certainly a care. And if you're going through something like that now or going through something like that in a personal relationship or something on your job, it makes it very difficult for you to listen to what I'm teaching to right now because you are so absolutely focused on and inundated by all of your problems that you hear my voice, but you can't really receive what I'm saying. The storm is too great. It's like living out in the country and you've got a barn that's 50 yards from the back door and then it's a snowstorm that has come, and the flurries are everywhere almost to the point of a whiteout, and Dad needs to have something brought from the barn to the house. So Dad says to his oldest boy, I want you to go out there to the barn, and then I want you to bring this back. So he steps out there into that whiteout, making his way to the barn. He steps out there and goes 20 feet. He can't see Dad. Dad can't see him. The wind is blowing. It's howling. 
Dad starts screaming and yelling after a few moments when he should have been back but still hadn't come back, and he's yelling and screaming, but the boy can't hear a thing because the storm is too great. And sometimes the things going on in your life are so great that they are shouting at you, and the voice of that problem is speaking to you loudly. And you come to church and hear me teach the Word of God and you can't receive the thing that I'm saying because your ears are shut up to what I'm saying and you're so focused on what you're hearing in your problems. And this is why Peter said, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. That means you can do this. You can do this. It is possible for you to take your cares and put them at Jesus' feet or in Jesus' hands and walk away from them. It takes trust. It takes faith in God. And you have to believe that, if I, Lord, I'm going to give this to you, and, and I'm going to trust God that in giving this to you, that you are not going to have me walking around here filled with anxiety and anxious about everything. I'm going to give this to you, and, Lord, as I step away, I'm going to trust that you've got this. You can do it. You can do it. You, you just have to believe. The same way... You would call somebody and establish a contract for them to do the landscaping at your house, and you say, look, here's the contract. Here's the money. I'm giving it to you in advance, and I'm expecting you to handle my lawn and hedges and whatever else throughout the season of growing. And once you put the money in their hands, you don't even worry about it anymore. All you know is your yard's supposed to look like it's supposed to look. And you're not calling every five minutes. You're not calling every third day. You're not calling every month because if they're doing what they're supposed to do, everything is well. Well, you put faith in that person. Why don't you put faith in God? Why don't you trust that God can handle what you're battling? So cast your care upon him. Then he says in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, taking you back to the, the, the analogy that I used of me coming into your house. You know how alert a person comes in the middle of the night that they hear a sound they're not supposed to hear, and they sit up trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Ears perk up, and you, you're wondering what is happening. That is what the Lord is saying regarding your Christian life. Be vigilant. Don't go to sleep and let this enemy come into your house and control you. Be ready to fight. And when the battle is brought to you, you take the battle to him and you give the devil more than he was looking for. That's what my dad told me as a kid. <clears throat> Remember, we weren't Christian. And so the, the, the advice I got at my house growing up was a lot different than probably what you told your kids as a Christian parent. But my, my dad didn't like bullies. And he certainly wasn't going to have any of his boys bullied. And, and so one time... I remember I got into it with a little guy, and he got the best of me. And then my older brother, he found out that this guy had got the best of me and made me look bad in front of the people in the neighborhood. I might have been in third or fourth grade. So my oldest brother, Anthony, he, he, he saw me. He said, well, what happened? I told him. He said, well, come on. I said, where are we going? He said, going around the block to where he is. So we went back around the block to where the young man was. He was out there cutting the grass, and my brother saw him out there cutting the grass. He said to me, well, get over there and get to it. Oh, yeah, went right on the front grass, and, I mean, we started up round two, and I beat the daylights out of him. Yeah. 
So that, that, that ended anything that had to do with, with any kind of bullying. But here's what my dad taught us. My dad said, if you're anywhere indoors and a man invites you to step outside, he said, hit him while you're indoors. That's what he said. He said, he said, once the fight starts, he said, you do whatever you have to do. Kick him, bite him, pinch him, anything you have to do so that by the time they pull you apart, you've given him so much grief that if he sees you walking down the street, he'll walk on the other side of the sidewalk just to get away from you. But see, most people don't resist an enemy like that. Most people are so complacent that when the devil comes into the house, we'll see the devil wreaking havoc in our kids. We'll see the devil wreaking havoc in our marriage. We'll see the devil wreaking havoc in our church. And rather than resisting him, we just let him do whatever he wants to do. When we should be fighting him and attacking him like he's an adversary. So you use the word of God and put your faith in God and say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I do not want to live the rest of my life like this. And so, God, I've got to walk away from this and trust you. And you do that. Otherwise, the devil will bring strife, discord, division into your home. You'll start despising one another. You won't want to be around one another. Family situations will become tough and difficult, and it doesn't have to be that way because you are able to control your reaction. You can control it. This all starts here. Let me finish this up. Be sober and vigilant, verse 8. Because your adversary, the devil, he's not your friend. He's like a roaring lion. Makes a lot of noise and ruckus. Prowls about seeking whom he may devour. So he's looking for a prey that he can overcome. You've got to be the prey that's stronger than him. Whom, speaking of the devil, resist steadfast in the what? Faith. So here's how we do it, by how we believe. So God hadn't called us to take our Bible and walk through the house and swing it. He hadn't called you to get you some anointing oil and on everybody that you're angry with, start slinging it at them, throwing it out. Okay? But with your faith, you're to be able to believe that God is strong enough to overcome the adversary. With your faith. And if other people around you start saying things like this, <clears throat> well, I'm not sure that that's really going to work. I mean, after all, you know, you, you have been battling this for 25 years. And I mean, this, you know, after, this is in your grandmother and in your parents, and it's probably a matter of genetics. And, and since you've been dealing with this all this time, I, I just think you need to learn how to live with it like everybody else. Absolutely not. If the devil is an adversary, as the Bible says, he's not your friend. He's not bringing friendlies with him. He's not bringing a friendly environment with you. You are to live in a state of rebellion against the devil. Not against God. Against the devil. So the scripture says, resist the devil, but submit yourself to God. See, Submit yourself to God. You've got to be able to determine in your life what it is that is of the adversary and then go out of your way to stand against it. And once you have determined what that is, fight it, resist it, and don't give in. 
And if you get mentally tired or fatigued, take a break. And then get right back in that Word and go to singing and praising and confessing the Scripture one more time. But whatever you do, don't give up your faith in God. Plenty of people have. Just totally walked away from the King. But you're called to be an overcomer. You're called to be strong. God has not called you to shoulder the burdens you're shouldering because your shoulders aren't broad enough and they're not strong enough. Let God have it. Yeah. And I think when we do that, we have a lot more ease. Ease, I should say, and peace. Some people don't sleep good at night. I sleep pretty well. You know, sleep pretty well. And if, if you can give things to God, then you're fine. Things that are out of my power and out of my control, why well, spend all my time worrying about it anyhow? Worry is still a form of meditation. You're just meditating on the wrong stuff. You can't change anything. Overly concerned about something. It's, it's hard to say to people, don't be so worried about your kids any more than somebody would say to me, don't be so worried about the church. But I mean, a long time ago, I decided I had to give you folks to God. I mean, God's big enough to handle homes and handle individuals. Why should I stress myself? I'm pulling my little bit of hair out and all of that just because I'm worried about how people are conducting themselves outside the church. All I can control is what happens when we gather together. I can't do anything about anybody's home, anybody's job, but I can teach the Word of God and show people how to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And if you do the Word, the Word will work. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Amen. Do the Word. Perform the Word. The Word will work. Create a new atmosphere and environment in your house. Do like Tiffany does when she's unhappy with me, crank up that gospel music at midnight, trying to go to sleep, and I mean that music getting louder and louder. Hey, how are we supposed to sleep around here? And as she says, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to hear this music right now. Okay. But if you've been battling these kinds of things, then when I pray, give all this stuff to God. Just lay it at his feet, and, and ask God to give you the victory that you so richly deserve because of his grace. You can't change your spouse and make your spouse become anything. God is able to do that. You can't even make your kids do anything. You can shape God and everything like that, but when they get older, they're going to do what they want to do. At some point, you're still going to have to be able to give them to God. You can't force a church, a pastor, to do anything, but you can talk to God about the pastor, and God can work. But let's go to God in prayer. Father, as we stand here this morning in this sanctuary, we are absolutely certain that you have called us to be free of depression, that excessive sorrow has never been your plan for our lives. So, Lord, right now we stand in your grace, enjoying the favor that you have provided through the covenant we have through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in every care.